The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. They were processing the whale. A week later, the whole world came and joined in and congratulated them for reviving that tribal tradition, which was guaranteed in perpetuity with that treaty that they had made with the United States government. It was quite an event. I'll never forget that. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Story gathering has two meanings. We gather together and we gather stories. In this episode, we're going to hear from Carol Craig, a member of the Yakima Nation and a journalist with the tribal newspaper. She's spent decades doing public education about tribal traditions and treaty rights. Carol was one of several tribal members who spoke at an event held during the 2019 Vanport Mosaic Festival in Portland, Oregon. Carol is going to introduce herself and share a powerful story about the Macaw tribe on the Washington coast. It was the late 1990s, and after a 70-year break, the Macaw decided to resume the tribal tradition of hunting whales. These hunts date back thousands of years and were a right protected under federal and international law. But the Macaw faced protests and harsh criticism from animal rights groups over their decision. Here's Carol. I'm an enrolled Yakima tribal member, and my tribal lineage extends across the Cascades, and I'm also Puyallup, Muckleshoot, Stiligwamish, and Squaxin, so that explains my love for seafood. (laughs) (laughs) I used to work for the Fish Commission, lived down here for 16 years, and then I was asked to go back home to Yakima, and I did public outreach from kindergarten through college level, talking about tradition, culture, and treaty rights, and um, uh, rebuilding the salmon runs, working with the Fish Commission, and so the fisheries department asked me to come back home, so I had done that for several years, and then I was offered a job down here for the Trust for Public Land as the Native American uh, Tribal Program Coordinator for them. I really enjoyed that as well. And then I decided, well, maybe it is time to go go back home. Back in... Uh, 1998, when the Macaw announced they were going to return to their traditional whale hunt. And I was reading the newspaper reports, and I knew the media had it wrong. And I thought, they don't understand. They don't understand that treaty right. And I got a call from the chairman one morning, and he said, Carol, we want to know what you think about what's going up at Macaw. And I said, I wish there was some way I could help. And he said, well, your wish has come true. Mm-hmm. And he says, we also have, we have Yakima relatives over there. They had family, and they were calling the Yakima tribe, and they said, we are being bombarded with these protesters. And their police department had very few policemen, uh, but with the barrage of all the protesters, they needed help, and they needed help with the media. So I was sent over there along with uh, three, three of our tribal police because they would... Um, tried to come onto the reservation every weekend and could not understand why they couldn't go march through town with their banners and uh, be against the whale hunt. And it was an opportunity for an education for them. And so as they stood there and the tribal police were there, I, I would talk, talk to them and tell them, you know why you can't step over here. And if you, if you do, it will be a federal offense and you will be arrested. And they, what? You know, I said, it's guaranteed in our 1855 treaty. And it's called trust responsibility and a fiduciary obligation to the tribes that they promised us. 
You know, they didn't understand what that meant. They would even stand with megaphones. Don't kill a whale. Just eat at McDonald's. Mm. I said, oh, gee, they've got it all figured out. Gee, you know. <laughs> uh, that was in November, and I was there all month long, and the chairman there told me, he said, Carol, um, it's inclement weather. They're not going to, they're going to stop training. So as you read in the paper, they were training, and, and the protesters would go out their boats, and they would throw the flares at the gasoline-operated boat their support boat. They were being called names. They had weapons pointed at them. And so he said, you go home, and then I'll call you next spring when they get getting ready to go out. So he did, and he called me in May, and he goes, Carol, they're going to go sometime this week. Okay. And so other tribal people heard about it, and they came to that place, and they were showing support, family, relatives, everyone. All the tribes were coming around during the week, and uh, we were staying in the old Air Force base, and they used that as a kind of like a hotel, so people were staying there. And so one morning, woke up, and they had the TV on downstairs, and they said, there's a helicopter. It's going. They're going after the whale this morning. I thought, wow. So all of us were jumping up and getting dressed, and it was maybe about seven seven miles to town, maybe that distance, and we went into the little town uh, to watch the TV because we couldn't get good reception out that far. And so we went into town, and there was the helicopter following him, and they threw the initial spear, and we got to see it. And then they took the rifle, and then they did that. Uh, come to find out later on, they said, the protesters, the night before, they partied into the night. It was somebody's birthday they were celebrating. And they didn't even know, and for some reason, the media boat would not start up that morning. And so they were not bothered whatsoever. So they decided to head out, and they did it. And it was a helicopter. So if you remember all of the articles, all of the pictures are from above, because no one was there. And they did it very quietly, and I was very proud to be just a small part of that, to witness that part of history, for them to reclaim their tradition and do it, and then overcome all of the hatred that was taking place. Uh, so once they did have that, they were processing the whale. A week later, the whole world came and joined in and congratulated them for reviving that tribal tradition, which was guaranteed in perpetuity with that treaty that they had made with the United States government. It was quite an event. I'll never forget that. And before I was sent over, that was really different because I... I was visiting with my sister and my uh, best friend, and we were talking, and I told him, you know what, I had the strangest dream the other night. I said, I, I was dreaming I, I could see these tribal people. I said, but I didn't know who they were. I said, and I was walking down this driveway, and then it became a sand, and then I seen this big log house by the ocean. And when I got to Macaw, and I was walking through the neighborhood. Everyone was very nice, and they were saying hello, even though they didn't know me. And then I was asked to go to a name-giving ceremony that evening, and it was a big log house, elder, uh, traditional long house, where they were having the uh, name-giving, and it was on the sand. And I thought, there's my dream. There's my dream. You're listening to Carol Craig, a longtime tribal educator with the Yakima Nation. She was speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Portland, Oregon. In the second part of the evening, the stories turned to the theme of resilience, and Carol shared stories of Celilo Falls, the grand and historic series of waterfalls in the Columbia River that were flooded by the Dalles Dam in 1957. 
It was a historic trauma for Columbia River tribes who relied on the falls as one of the greatest fisheries in North America and a spiritual and cultural stronghold. Again, here's Carol. I tell people where I'm from, and that's how we know who we are, especially when when we see each other and we may not know one another. Uh, If I was at a powwow, and that's the first thing that we ask is, uh, who are your parents? Where are you from? (laughs) You know, the location. And then we know, oh, okay, so then you're my third cousin, and and then we find out about one another. And that's what they were doing at uh, at Silo back then, too. So uh, we had tribal people coming from great lengths, uh, just to come to that part of the world and to trade, uh, to barter, to maybe intermarriage with different people when they came down there. Again, it was a place uh, where they where they could meet, where they could fish, uh, uh, where they could powwow, where where they could hold religious services, and then get to know one another. Uh, I didn't grow up with grandparents. And they also come to non-tribal diseases before I ever got to know them. And I just really value that. When I worked for the Fish Commission, uh, we would go to the different reservations, Umatilla, Warm Springs, Nespers, and back at home. And I had to interview the elders, and I learned so much. I was so appreciative of that. And then finding, again, those home links, those family links. Oh, I didn't know that. See, so they were, they were married into the tribe. They did this, you know, and they hold the history. I, I was 10 years old uh, when Slilo was flooded over, and I didn't realize what was going on. And I remember my father saying he didn't want to go down there. And so then walking, learning from the elders when I worked at the Fish Commission from each of the four tribes talked about that day, and they talked about the history of it. And it was just, just very, very sad and uh, a place that was put there by the Creator, especially for the tribal people. Uh, so they could get their resources. The great gathering place, uh, they consider it the hugest marketplace in the world because the other tribe, tribes would gather there. Uh, so they started out back then uh, building the railroad bridge and the tribal people would be fishing and the fishermen would look over there and they'd say, why are they building that bridge so high? Because even during the high water months of the year, it's never going to get that high not knowing or understanding the federal government already had plans in place to build that dam, to make that railroad bridge high enough uh, after they built that dam. Uh, So uh, they even sent a delegation from the Yakima tribe to Washington, D.C., and they dressed in their regalia. They told the Congress and the Senate and the President of the United States how important that place was to them what it meant to them, and how it would be ruined if the dam was in place. It fell on deaf ears. And there was nothing they could do. And they even told them at that time, uh, if you don't accept what we're offering you, then we'll just condemn it, and you won't get anything. Even non-tribal people suffered. And you hear the stories from the tribal people about the people that had their businesses down there. And uh, there was one little gas station that was there, and he had a store. And Ed Edmo talks about it, and he says, uh, the guy wanted to hold out. He was a non-tribal man. He wanted to hold out for some money. He thought he would get more than maybe the tribes. So they condemned his land. He said he stood there crying in his red hanky as the bulldozer was knocking over his gas station. So he got nothing and received nothing. So on that fateful day, there, there it was. It took, they say, seven to eight hours before it was 
finally flooded over. They closed those concrete gates. Uh, some of the tribal people stood on the side of the hill and they were beating their drums and they were crying and they were praying and they were mourning the place. Other people stayed inside the village, inside their houses. They did not want to watch it, but they said you could hear wailing and crying, moaning, praying, and they knew it would never be the same. And other people like my father, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it happen. So he didn't go down there. And some people that lived in the village left too. They came to Portland. They went to other places. They didn't want to watch the death of Salilo. And they thought after that would happen, that the tribal people would just lay down their fishing equipment and walk away. No, resilience. And then the dams created the demise of the fish runs. And we came and we talked with the state and the federals. We said, this is supplementation. Take that salmon out of that concrete hatchery. Put them back in the streams and rivers where they have been. So they'll return there. They still have that scent. They, they know. Oh, no, no. We, we had to go to court. We had to fight. We even had to fight the states. Finally, we just started doing it. When I moved back home, I was setting up information booths at the sports shows, and uh, we were busy planting salmon in the Yakima River. And it took 10 years. We finally got the first run, and it was like we shared. It's for everyone, not just the tribal people. And when I first set it up uh, one year, I had a short four-question quiz, and I would ask people. One included the treaty. One included supplementation and what we were doing. And some would say, oh, gosh, I know nothing. I said, oh, it's called a learning experience. <laughs> and so I set up at, up, up, uh, at the Tri-Cities and I had at the sports show. And so it, it had the accommodation fisheries. And then I asked this gentleman walking by, if you take a short quiz, you know, about the river and what we're doing, then you can have your choice of this and this. And he read it and he said, the only thing I want to do is blow up this booth. And I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Thought something else, but anyway, um, a few years later, went back again, and I always took samples of uh, salmon, smoked salmon from the tribal elders, and it was so delicious. Uh, so I went back, and it was doing the same thing, and it was fishing season, and everybody was fishing, and the salmon were back home where they belong. And I was still doing the same thing, educating different questions, but still on the treaty, still about supplementation and how the salmon were coming back. And I had sports fishermen coming up to me saying, would you please go back and tell the tribe, if we know if it wasn't for the tribe, there'd still be no salmon in the Yakima River. Thank you. And so they understood, so that process, and I considered an ongoing education process to let them know how we're working for the resources, what our duties are, and so we can continue to pass that on too. That was Yakima Nation tribal member Carol Craig speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Portland, Oregon. A special thanks to the Vanport Mosaic Festival for including our storytellers in the 2019 festival. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast.